you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 24, the finale to another wonderful season. Season 7 begins this upcoming Sunday. As for tonight, I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing four spine-chilling tales for you, all of them from the incredibly talented author, Joshua L. Hood about creepy cabins, fearsome forests, unusual entities, and immortal evils. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two terrifying tales. 
If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale tonight from Joshua L. Hood uh, is a story that will reveal the mysteries behind a cabin and why, no matter where you are, you need to stay out of it. Without further ado, I present to you Pan in the Mists of Eden. It's not the cabin, it's the spring. The spring's why I can't go back inside, even as the snow swirls around me and I grow numb. I can't even go back to get the bodies of those who couldn't claw their way out. The cabin will stay vacant, unmolested, leering into the frozen wood and billowing mist from the boiling spring until the next time some poor bastards stumble across it trying to get out of a winter storm. Some poor bastards like my husband and his partner. Like me. I don't expect I got much time left. The furs are still in there, but I haven't the courage to retrieve them. I can, and will die first. It's so cold. My fingers haven't long for the freeze, and this ain't probably less time than that. So here's the story. Here's why you mustn't be the poor next bastard to enter that cabin. Just keep walking and die in the snow. You've made it this far, as far from home as anyone has ever gone. It's far enough. If you can go back, then do. If the law is after you, give up. If you can't go another step, die here. It's for the best. My mother told me I should marry Rich, so I did. What I didn't consider is that rich in the Arctic doesn't mean rich in money. It means rich in prospect, which means you ain't rich until your knuckles are boneless and your eyes are permanent squints. But the Lord will always keep the rich man digging and the poor woman dreaming. When we heard of the eastern bend in the river, we reckoned that we'd found a way to make our dreams come true. It's a secret bend known only to the natives, where the course of the gold-bottomed river goes back into the mountains for miles and miles. But you already know that, don't you? You probably also know that the Indians say the source of all the gold in the mountains lies east inland, in the waters flowing from the depths of the mountains. They say it lashes out to where the whites come to claim it with our sluices and barges. Already expeditions have set out into those mountains, but it's rough going on foot. A river like the secret eastern bend would be the key to the source loads. Well, gold isn't the only thing that burns deep in those mountains. A western river that flows east for more than a leg isn't a natural thing. We should have known that from the beginning. The Indians said so, but they're a superstitious lot, so we didn't listen. 
They're all so opportunists and haven't much love for prospectors. So it didn't take much to get one of them to spill the beans on how to find their cursed lands. Two rifles and some sugar for a scout to walk us to the bend. Then he left without even a warning. That's fitting enough, I guess. One of the rifles didn't even work. My husband said that we had to light a fire under it, meaning we had to hurry. If the secret was that cheap, then we had to make first strike to claim the land before someone else got there. We had to be the very first. So imagine our surprise when we saw the cabin. The eastern bend, I call it a bend, though it was really a river all by itself, was so narrow at first that you could almost step across it at points. The thicket and snow shells meant we had to port several times just to get around dense spots. This meant we traveled increasingly lighter as we went. First, we left the stove, then the coal. We kept the tools, of course, the picks. Oh, God, that we should have left the picks. When the river opened up, it began to flow faster, too fast to ever row out of, almost too fast to stay aright. We knew then that we were committed, hell or high water, and there'd be both. We had to make a go of it. I don't think I was the only one who began wishing we'd stayed put. Remember what I said? The river was just unnatural. There's something just not right about a western river that flows east. By the time we saw the smoke from the cabin, we'd almost given up. We were bedraggled, and game was non-existent, like they knew better, and the snow fell heavy. Most of our gear was gone, smashed into the rocks, and swallowed up by the earth. You see, a river like that has nowhere to go except to a lake or to the ground. Our river went to the ground in a hurry. First, we were struggling to stay aright in the rapids. Next thing we know, we were scrambling to the banks and washing our boat smash into a wall of rock that the river disappeared into. Most of our gear sank into that wall of rock. I still shudder at the thought of getting pulled down into that frozen, otherworldly cave. It'd be like getting eaten by the mountain itself, chewed by stone teeth, swallowed down a cold throat. Fortunately, some of our stuff got caught in a squirrel long enough to get saved. You learn to pack things to float when you travel these rivers. Even the picks made it ashore, though no one remembered pulling them out. Then the wind began to whip the snow around. We were wet, and there was nothing to burn. The body don't last long under those conditions. At first, I thought the smoke from the cabin was a mirage, like what dying people seeing in the desert, except for it was a mirage of fire instead of water, like the same thing but the exact opposite. But then Otis, my husband's dig partner, saw it too. He said it couldn't have been far away, and that the fire must be really burning to put off that much smoke in a storm. So we got toward it and in a hurry too. Probably would have died had we gone another dozen steps, but there was a cabin, billowing with steam. I say steam because there really was no fire in the cabin. It had been completely abandoned, so there was no one left there to start one. But there was a hot spring somewhere up the mountainside, 
that had been piped directly into the building itself, so that its chimney billowed out boiling mist instead of smoke. We were too thankful for the warmth to consider such an odd thing in a place where no man was supposed to have been before. Of course, someone had been there before, hadn't they? I don't think the cabin just grew from the ground. I think it was built by an ordinary hard-working man. A hermit, maybe. I don't know who or when, but it didn't look that old. The Indians said we were the first people they'd told about the Eastern Band. But I didn't believe it for a second, even then. So someone had beaten us to it, and they built a cabin to boot. Clearly, they'd better luck at the start than we had, but I'd wager their luck in the end was just the same. We really shouldn't have built over the spring. I don't know who piped the water down, but I know it wasn't the same who built the cabin. The cabin was a bit of opportunity. The piping from the spring was, is, something of intention. What the intention was, we'll never know. But it was built by someone with great care and a long, long time ago. Longer ago than even the Indians walked these woods, if I had my guess. The writing carved into the stone pipes that funnel the water, a break in which allowed for the steam of the cabin, looked much like what I'd seen in my Bible studies, in the part about Moses and the Egyptians. See, Father Davis once brought in a museum piece with real ancient writing on it. I was just a girl then, but I remember it. It was a moment of awe that I'll never forget. Gave me a spirit for adventure, the foolish kind of adventure, that leads a sober woman to do something stupid like marry a prospector. The writing on the pipes was like that Bible writing, but it was a little different. The pictures that made up the characters didn't make any sense. In the Bible writing, it was birds and eyes and stuff. On the pipe, it was animals, too, but none like I could identify except for something that looks like a goat on two legs, and the closest thing to an eye looked angry and piercing. It followed a body around the room when you walked, and toward the end, I thought I saw it blink. The pipe was only the size of a man's arm, but it carried a lot of water. You can see it running a straight line up the mountainside. Steam and melted snow defined the winter's drifts. Where it went after the cabin was down into the earth. Well, after that, it's anybody's guess. Otis said the writing was Indian, like on the totems they carved from trees. I think he was wrong. I think the whole valley is wrong. It feels much older than it should. That's what the Indians had said. They called this the place of the mountain's ancestors. I know what that means now. I thought at first that was a clumsy way of referring to your own ancestors, but it's not. This place is older than the mountains. It gave birth to them. There's another thing learned in my studies, a word, primeval. It means the first age, though I think that's not quite right. I think it's actually the first evil. I think this place is that, or at least part of it, whatever is left of the time before God tempered his fury. It's carnal in a way that takes a man back to his animal being, before the divine breath of life was breathed into his nostrils. I saw it with my husband and with Otis, and with me. 
savage. Wind is blowing so hard now, but the trees don't sway. I just now noticed that. The trees are like stone. Cold must be getting into my head. I better hurry. So we held up for several days before we heard the first sounds. They came from where the water bubbled out of the pipe. There was a diversion built to flow out of the cabin and down the mountainside. The water that didn't go back into the pipe after the break would run out that way. There was a firebox built around the break and a chimney so that it looked every bit the fireplace. It wasn't until later that I realized that the trees down that slope of runoff grew much more wildly than the average tree around here. I said normal trees, but we know better now, don't we? I wonder. I just had to walk over to the runoff hill and look at those trees. I'm getting stiff. But the walk put a little fire in my blood. It was, as I suspected. The wild trees do blow in the wind, but not just blow. They positively vibrate. These other trees, the old ones, they're stoic and firm. But the young trees, they're alive. The first noises to come from the pipe were like pained animals. At first, we just chalked it up to the bubbling of the water. Streams and springs do chatter, after all. Who hasn't heard the soft trickle of water and not thought of voices babbling like a brook? But these were different. They weren't babbling voices. They were anguished. Back home, I heard a cow calving once. It was like that. The pain of life being wrenched from its home. Then the voices became human. I didn't hear it until my husband did, but he said they sometimes made sense, said real words. He joked about it at first, but not for long. Otis agreed with him, and even got solemn about the voices before long, just like my husband. They'd give each other sidelong glances from time to time, like they'd heard something they just couldn't abide, but they didn't want to disrupt polite company saying so. Or maybe they just wanted to make sure they weren't the only ones who'd heard it. When I did hear the human voices, I never did understand what they said. The language seemed like rocks grating on each other. The anguish was the same, though, and I often got the impression of death from the words. I had just as often got the impression of life, but at neither time did I feel the sorrow or joy that those things should bring. I just heard, I don't know. And then there was the laughter. But I don't want to talk about the laughter. It just doesn't seem appropriate after everything. I didn't even wake up when Otis put the pick through my husband's skull. I felt the disturbance in the single bed of the cabin, and I think I knew then what had happened, but I was comfortable. And that is what had mattered. Sloth is a carnal sin. I didn't wake up when Otis did what he did next, either, though I think I might have enjoyed it if I had. But that's something else I don't want to talk about. When I did finally arise, Otis was dead, too. He'd eaten our entire store and died right there with a mouthful of his own vomit. Good riddance, I said. His mouth and hands were all burned, like he'd been drinking the water straight from the pipe. We'd all been drinking the water for some time, 
but we had the sense of patience to at least let it cool. I don't know what changed, but something had. I heard the sound of something walking on the roof right then. It sounded like hard shoes or hooves. I somehow ignored it, as it seemed natural enough a thing, and kept staring at Guthrie. For some reason, I found it funny the way he looked while dead. I started laughing just like the voices. I laughed so hard that I lost track of myself. I laughed through tears of pain and sorrow until I knew nothing for a long time. When I finally stopped laughing, I came to and found that I was drenched in blood. At first, I was terrified that it was my own. But then I saw my husband and Guthrie's head impaled upon some sticks, their tongues lolling out their mouths, somehow smiling. The sticks were lashed together with others so as to have arms and legs like little men. They were supposed to be dancing. I don't know how I knew that, but I did. The urge to laugh came back, but I denied it for sheer terror. I had to pick in my hands, too, and there were holes in the bodies, hundreds of them. The muscles of my arms hurt almost as bad as the muscles of my face from laughing too much. What, I, I, what had I done? That's when I ran from the cabin. The cool air has cleared my head and the horrors of my actions have set upon me. I'm still, however, lusting for something. It burns in my head and I think I know what it is. It's the greatest sin of all, the fall of man, the lust for knowledge. I wish to know the spring, not just know what the spring is or where it comes from, but I wish to know the spring itself in a carnal way. I'm heading up the mountain with whatever strength I have left. I'm going to follow the pipe to its source. If I find myself near death before I do, I'll find a break in the pipe and swim in it until the blistering end overcomes me. I don't wish this, but who can turn down life at its source? And I shan't be alone. I see that now. There's a man standing in the trees. A man with backwards legs. He waits for me. His eyes are yellow and square. I've seen him before in the sound of the water. He'll go with me until I can no longer go any further. Then he'll help me find a break in the line. If you find this writing, then you've been warned. Don't go into the cabin. Don't drink from the spring. If you do, however, choose to ignore this warning, then do me a favor. Bring out the bodies of my men. Bury them proper before the madness gets you. Let them find some peace, even in this cursed soil. I'm heading up the mountain now. I'll surely not make it. But I have nothing else. I shan't return. Whoever you are, please stay out of the cabin. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that 
and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed Pan in the Mists of Eden, as written by Joshua L. Hood and performed by yours truly. Up next, we've got a second tale of terror for you, courtesy once again of Joshua L. Hood. In it, we'll encounter something evil in the woods and discover why rain is such a blessing. After all, rain hides everything. Without further ado, I present to you Under the Sweet Gum Tree. It'll rain tonight. That's good. I can use the rain. Rain hides everything. It was hard to dig quietly through the leaves. I should have waited for the rain. I wonder if I'll be around for the morning rainbow. Enough about the rain. Dig faster. Judd Harper, sharpshooter, first sergeant of F Company, Georgia Legion, used an unhafted spade to carefully shoo away the dried leaves behind a fallen tree. He was so close to the officer's mess that he could hear the voices of the men inside. The ghost of a dulcet laugh breezed through the oil canvas. It'll be all smoky, no morning rainbows for him. Judd paused to contemplate that, but only for as long as it took to get a queasy feeling about the future. Sorry, old boy. I'll be quick about it. He continued digging. As best he could, he preserved a small pile of leaves next to the six-foot bare patch he'd cleared. Then he stopped. Breaking the silence that would have been imperceptible to an inattentive mind proceeded a flock of late-season sparrows jumping from a bramble of witch hazel. Moments later, he heard the cumbersome sound of boots over dried leaves. Already face down on the forest floor, he willed himself to get even flatter to the ground as the crunch of autumn footsteps approached. Spiky seed pods pressed their needles through his coat, but he didn't feel them. Pain would be too loud. No thoughts dared enter his head lest they be heard by the enemy. The steps grew closer, accompanied by the heavy panting of someone who was anxious to get done with perimeter patrol. When they reached the other side of the log, they stopped for a tense moment, confirming in Harper's mind the animal basis for all human nature. Like a dog scenting a cougar, the patrolman had faltered in his hurried path, unsure why, but clearly alarmed on a level that only registered when the threat of death was about. Then, with the inattention of the civilized dullard, he disregarded the warning and crunched away into the woods. Judd counted a ten. Then he rolled over, slowly. From beneath him, he removed a folded length of brown canvas. It was barely visible against the shade-dappled ground, and he beamed proudly as he looked at the charcoal and mud he rubbed into its weave. 
Well done, Harper. The others said it was overkill, but their lives didn't depend on staying hidden all night. A dish dropped in the distance, and Judd began digging again. He heaped the dirt, dry at first, but soon as moist as cornbread batter onto the canvas, glancing frequently at the distribution to make sure there were no geometrically recognizable angles developing. Only when the hole was six feet long and three feet deep, the perfect dimensions for a shallow grave, did he allow himself to acknowledge the burn in his shoulders that came from digging while lying face down in the dirt. Something sent a shadow stretching across the ground. His vision faded slightly, then dilated as the animal part of his brain fought off a moment of panic. At first he froze so that whoever cast the shadow might not see him. But then he looked up, thinking it might be a little too late for that. The only thing to greet him was the orange sunset, casting long shadows from the sweet gum trees. He quietly sighed in relief. Then, gingerly, almost individually, he placed the leaves he'd saved onto the top of the canvas and the dirt pile until it looked unmistakably like the natural ground it had come from. Then he crawled in the hole. The only other item he brought with him was a rifle. He'd not even brought a sidearm in case things went south. He wasn't going to take on Brigadier Jonathan Old Smokey Kincaid's regiment with a six-shooter. And he wasn't going to spend the rest of the war a prisoner at Camp Douglas, either. He'd have eleven shots after the first in which to die in a last stand if it came to that. He would have had twelve extra, but that'd mean starting off with thirteen before old Smokey got his, and Georgia Church learning wouldn't allow him to court such uncertain luck. As he took a knee and began unwrapping the rifle from the oil bag, it seemed to him that his hole wasn't nearly as deep as it seemed. It was all he could do to stoop low enough to stay behind the log. It must have misjudged the depth of the shadows. He glanced at the sun, compressed oblong into the narrow gap between cloud and horizon, and listened to the sounds of dishes being clattered. There was still time. Back out of his hole, he very slowly picked up the spade again. In a moment of paralyzing fear, he realized that he'd not hidden it and had had no intention to before he'd gotten in. Shit, Harper, you almost... If they saw that... He stopped thinking about it, feeling stupid and jittery, like he'd fallen out of a tree and wanted his mama to come out and rescue him before the pain set in. Not the feeling he thought he'd have when he set out to kill a man in cold blood. Let's leave mama out of this. He began to dig again. The hole did indeed seem shallower than it had been when he got in. It was barely two feet at its deepest, though he swore that it was half again that before. Not wanting to ruin his canvas masterpiece, and without anywhere particular to put the dirt he was staking out, he began to lob it widely out into the woods around him, making broad, scattering arcs that wouldn't leave any pattern of activity. Each fling of dirt sounded like a gatlin gun of pebbles and clods firing into the leaves and branches of the undergrowth. Each time Judd's heart stopped for three beats after to listen for anyone who might have heard. One, two, three. Voices laughed unaware. They were less hardy than before, more sleepy, relaxed, off guard. 
Dinner would be over soon. Dig, man. A soft, squishing thump stopped his spade. Deepening shadows obscured the ground, which was good except that he couldn't see what his spade had struck. He felt in the shadows until he touched something. A wet, bony appendage ran along the bottom of the hole, leaking fluid from where the spade had damaged. It was about the width and length of a human arm. Judd flinched and drew back, removing his hand into the light. It was covered, not with corpse blood as he feared, but with a clear, runny substance that smelled of sugar. A goddamn root? But I've already dug here once. There was no root before. He tugged at it and wondered if the root was somehow responsible for raising the bottom of his hole. Must have engorged with water, like a swelling ankle or a blister. Maybe I struck it to begin with, and whatever. It's not important. He cut it out with the spade, even as it slipped and squirmed like beheading a fish. He held it for a queasy moment, not sure why it put him off his stomach, but aware that he wanted nothing more to be rid of it immediately. It felt warm, too warm, still too much like an arm. He flung the chunk of root out into a bush with a crash that he wasn't surprised didn't signal to every federal that he was mucking about in their woods. Shit, Harper. One, two, three. When his heart resumed after ten beats of silence, he crawled back into the hole and invited darkness to come. It wouldn't be completely dark when he took the shot. He'd rather it had been... But the Lord, no, the Lord had nothing to do with this. Providence had only granted him a cloudy twilight. It would do. The sounds of dishes had subsided and the officers retreated to their sections. Brigadier General John Kincaid stepped out behind the officers' mess to light a pipe. The moniker Old Smokey wasn't one that John Kincaid was familiar with. It was one that Judd had given him at the outset of his mission. The others had laughed because it was appropriate. Every day after dinner, rain or shine, General Kincaid would step out back the mess tent, take a piss, light a pipe for a long, slow smoke. This information was noticed by a keen-eyed scout over a period of three days, and Judd's lieutenant had immediately known what to do with it. All they needed was a sharpshooter. Regular as a country boy's morning shit. The general's match struck a flare against the dying light. That flare was all Judd had aimed for, so he didn't wait for it to dim. He took aim just to the left and pulled the trigger. Before the first curl of smoke drifted from the briar, a lead ball passed through the general's skull and out the other side. A hundredth of a second later, the crack of the gun report caught up to it, and the Federals were on their feet. Judd cranked out the spent shell into the hole, then stretched out on top of it. He fumbled the rifle until it lay down on his chest, butt ending by his knees, barrel by his cheek. Then he reached up and felt for the edge of the dirt and leaf-covered canvas until he got a good hold of the tattered hem. Then he hesitated. He'd practiced this maneuver in his mind a thousand times over the past day, but he'd never actually tried it. Canvas was heavier than he thought it would be, but that wasn't the problem. Something was wrong. What had he forgotten? The spade. He flailed his right arm out of the hole and through the leaves for several seconds, blindly groping. 
From the nearby camp, he could hear the shouts of alarm, smell the waft of gun oil, feel the vibrations of feet stamping about in chaos. God damn it, Judd. Cold steel. He gripped the sharp end of the spade, roughly scraping his fingers, but not caring to notice. He tried to pull the spade into the hole with him, but it had caught upon something. He jerked harder, feeling brittle springs snap and stretch like it had gotten caught in a fishing net. Or more roots. Someone shouted for a medic. They found the general. It would only be a matter of time before they pinpointed Judd's direction. With a panicked jerk, he yanked on the spade, but sweat from his fingers and blood from the scratch caused his hand to slip from it. A large gouge furrowed its way across his palm as a reward for his efforts. Damn it all! He abandoned the spade with one healthy and one injured hand. He rediscovered the canvas and pulled at least 50 pounds of sodden dirt over him. The world went black and quiet. He was buried alive. Time passed, not much, but just enough to give Judd the chance to inch the canvas down over his boots with little kicks, like when the blankets creep up on a cold night. And then they were there. Muffled sounds of command began to accompany soft thuds of footfalls. They were jumping directly over the log he was hiding behind. One single foot out of place in the soft dirt above him would give away his secret. Did I dig far enough under the log? Yeah, yeah, I did. I'm sure of it. Did I leave too much sign? No matter now. What's done is done. A cold rivulet of muddy water crept from the darkness above and seeped into the right leg of his trouser. The rain had come. Finally. Just enough to wash away the sign, he prayed. Dear God, don't let it drown me down here. The weight of the mud grew imperceptibly more, but in his mind he felt each drop fall with crushing weight, pressing the air from his lungs. He heaved a deep breath against the canvas and his lungs expanded again. It wasn't the rain that he was feeling, but the simple weight of the earth competing with his tiring diaphragm. He had expected this, though. One doesn't get buried alive and just keep on breathing. He knew he'd use up the air around him soon enough. Hopefully, by then, the Federals would be far enough away that he could risk letting in a little more. He'd wait for that, though. Voices still dripped through the mud with the drizzling rain. Somewhere out this way. A voice sounded distantly, but actually came from only feet away. What Judd heard was, Somewhere out this way. Someone replied, A runner was sent to sea company. They'll bring the hounds, which sounded like, Unner sent to company. He'll bring the hounds. Judd heard the words hounds with perfect clarity, even through the mud. It was his one fear. C Company is two miles away. By the time they get there, they'll find the false sign up Birch Creek. They won't start looking here. He hoped for himself. Besides, ain't nothing I can do about it now. A parade of searching voices continued swirling around overhead, sometimes coming, sometimes going with the thuds of booted feet. Search party after search party crossed by log and the hole. Somehow, miraculously, no one had spotted the spade though the rain must have cleaned it to a shine by then. A sharp pressure the size of a foot pressed down on the corner of Judd's leg, pinching it slightly into the mud. Judd held what little breath he had. Bah! 
A voice said as the pressure relieved. Stapping followed as someone tried to get Judd's grave dirt off their shoe. Judd pinched his eyes closed even tighter and groped around with his finger until he found the trigger of the rifle across his chest. He wouldn't go without a fight, futile as it may be. He realized he was breathing heavily through his nose, almost hyperventilating, except that was, there wasn't enough air. Fear of what would have happened if he got caught assailing a renowned federal general in cold blood was only barely stronger than the fear of fingering the trigger of a 4440 with a full charge aimed at his face. The voices kept rambling until they faded into the distance. Whoever had stepped in his hole hadn't thought well enough to investigate. He'd been lucky, silently prayed that that luck would hold. As he dwelt on the idea, Judd felt a sharp jab in the side of his ribcage. He flinched, and a cascade of muddy water flowed through the weave of the canvas. The jab became a pressing pain that threatened to pierce his gray coat and stab into his skin. He nudged himself away from it, but it kept coming, slowly extruding from the wall of the grave. Another poke grew into a soft stab, and Judd pressed away from it again. Earth crumbled where a gap opened up along the side of the hole, and he stopped moving, lest someone was nearby to see the ground suddenly split. The jab grew stronger and more painful, but he had no room left to escape to. As the fresh air from the gap reinvigorated his mind and put life into the limbs, he had, slowly, so as not to catch the trigger, moved his arm down to his side where the offending object was. Cold steel. Judd's blood ran like April meltwater. A spade? He pushed on the edge of it, forcing the point away from his ribcage and down. It moved easily through the mud, then, listening to make sure there was no one to see the moving ground beneath their feet, he reached two fingers into the wall of the grave and hooked the tang. It resisted, then broke free with a rapid twist, trailing small strands of fiber that reminded him of the dirt surrounding wild mushrooms. Well, I'll be damned, he thought. Can't be. It's not my spade, it's another. He felt around the edges. It certainly felt like the one he'd been using. If I could see it, it'd probably be rusty and old. Might have been buried here for years. He tucked the spade beneath him with the point angled away and pulled the heavy canvas back over the gap in his hiding spot. Then he continued to wait, willfully forgetting the mysterious tool that had crept out of the mud to jab at him. It was going to be a long night. The air grew heavy and warm. Sometime later, the baying hounds roused his lugubrious mind. It was impossible to tell how distant they were, so he lifted the canvas from over his face. A gap opened up in a small avalanche of mud and leaves. He spit softly and shook his head. Cold air, the freshest he'd ever breathed, filled his lungs. A single star was visible between the canvas and the log, but most of the sky was blotted out by the sweet gum trees hanging overhead. The storm clouds had apparently passed over as he mulled in a fatigued stupor. There was no voices about, and the clear sounds of baying were so far distant that he knew they'd missed his trail for now. He breathed deeply, suddenly wanting more than anything to jump and run. But he reminded himself there was still a camp full of Federals not so far away. He'd have to plan his exit gracefully. 
drop of water fell from the log and onto his face as something against his back began to move. No, writhed, squirmed. The image that came instantly to his mind was another confirmation that the ancient fears of Eden hadn't fully fled the senses of civilized man. A breeding ball of snakes, writhing and convulsing from deep beneath the porous earth, cresting the loam like a many tentacled beast from the darkest seaman's tail, hissing, snapping, cavorting. It all came to his imagination, already heavy with the adrenaline fatigue of being a hunted murderer. My God, I planted myself in a snake den. Instead of screaming, he exhaled hard between his teeth and made his own snake-like hiss that ended in a whimper. The slithering quickened. Sharp, rough points whipped around like a cottonmouth's tail after you hack off its head with a shovel. Or a spade. Judd reached under himself with a shudder of denied horrors, pushing through a tangle of warm bodies and seized the spade. Snake-like things curled and probed his hand, but when they brushed the back of his hand, he knew it wasn't scales he was feeling. It was rough, like wood. More goddamn roots? How? What in God's name? Georgia Church Learning was all too ready to answer the unfurnished question. It was nothing in God's name. Thoughts of imps, hellfire, and the devil's own retribution against sinners sprang unbidden into his mind. Thou shalt not kill. And he'd killed. But he'd killed before. In war. Not God's war, he thought. Not for the first time. But this was murder. Murder's just another kind of killing. All men kill. All animals kill. It's the nature of life to die. He'd seen it a million times in the woods, in the war. He'd been ready to accept it for himself, or so he thought. But what he'd just made happen was a different kind of death. No other animal's murder, and this is murder. Judd decided to run for it after all. If he could outrun the Federals, then maybe he could outrun the devil and his own guilty conscience. He tensed in preparation, but then, a voice from above. It's got to be past Danbury, and halfway to Florida by now, the voice griped. There may be others about just waiting for us to get diverted. You just watch your post now, boy. Yes, sir, just saying. Well, say it over there where you belong. Footsteps, far quieter in the wet leaves than the dry, trampled round in the nearby bramble. Judd stifled a quail that have embarrassed him even in the worst of times. The snakes or roots or whatever hadn't stopped or slowed down, but were now groping at him as though they were feeling his for the flesh behind his coat, like a doctor prodding for whatever it was that doctors prodded for. He gripped hard on the spade and made a feeble slicing motion with his wrist, trying to catch a squirming thing, but to no avail. He was trapped far too tightly in the pit to act with any force, and clawing his way free would earn him a bullet before he even got a chance to run. For the first time, he began to feel claustrophobic. He continued to jab as best he could with the spade without stabbing himself until a rough tentacle wrapped itself around the bent metal of the tang and ripped the thing from his hand. He could feel the spade rolling and shattering below him in the writhing ball of groping fingers as they turned it, inspected it. Unable to remain still any longer, 
Judd squirmed as best he could away from the twisting mast and up against the log side of the pit. A single star disappeared from view, and two more made themselves visible just above his face, each one a pupil's distance from the other, so that his depth of field went askew. A swirling vertigo accompanied his revulsion. He felt the urge to vomit, but breathed deeply instead. The two stars disappeared briefly, then blinked back into view. They seemed to warble up and down in Judd's vision. They can't be stars. The certainty of the thought stuck in his mind, unbidden and violently resisted by the instinctual part of his mind that was made to recognize the most familiar of human beings. Eyes. No, they're raindrops. The reflection off rainbows dangling under the log. I've slid too far over. There's no sky to see, he tried to believe. The squirming mass had seemed to grow weary of inspecting the spade, and had resumed its prodding at Judd's back. He arched up between his shoulders and heels in a vain attempt to escape it. The dirt resisted with all the force of gravity it possessed, and his shoulders immediately began to burn with fatigue. The stars, or perhaps the glint off of two raindrops, blinked out and back in again. Cat! Damn! Cold night! A voice said from above. Judd's throat tightened as he momentarily thought of the log above his head had spoken the words, but the mushy crunch of boots on leaves just above his grave reminded him that there were still Federals about. Somehow he'd forgot. The log shifted slightly and creaked as the owner of the voice sat down on it. The two glints of light hovering inches above his face rotated up toward the sound of the patrolman and then back down to Judd. They squinted with an almost human-like expression of annoyance, and Judd knew that they weren't raindrops. The patrolman shifted on the log and the eyes jostled, but never broke contact with Judd. Suddenly, he felt the presence of the patrolman so near to him. In his desperation, he felt a connection to the man. A tendril of companionship reached out and groped for him. Desperately, he tried to rationalize how the kinship of two men, any two men, be it north or south, could overcome their differences and find strength in the face of unknown terror. But his mind wouldn't buy it. His mind couldn't forget the life he'd just taken and the punishment that awaited him at the hands of the enemy. He must stay hidden. He must stay still. All the same, he vaguely hoped that the soldier above his grave would look down and somehow see right through the soil and the man cowering under it. His eyes grew minutely larger, and in the dark, Judd could imagine them leaning in for a closer look, where, moments before, he was stretching to get away from the squirming mass below him. He was now pressed hard into the snaking mud to get as far away from the eyes as possible. But the squirming was gone. Only the spade lay below him. Then, with a shock of movement, one of the eyes grew explosively larger and plipped onto his forehead with a cold splash. The other one wavered as the patrolman shifted around on a log and grumbled to himself. Then it, too, dripped down and disappeared. Judd felt almost like laughing. In my mind. It's all in my mind. The eyes were water. The snakes were poor circulation. Must have been. Madness comes, madness goes. Just hang in there, Harper. He smiled and sighed a little chuckle of release 
then fell senseless in a wave of relief. The sun warmed his cheek with a silver dollar-sized beam that penetrated his lair. The air was warm, too, for autumn, and a whispering breeze tossed the leaves skittering across each other. Judd opened his eye against the crust of dried mud. There was no sound beyond the leaves and breeze, nothing but visible sky in the narrow gap that let in the light. Dimly, he could see the underside of the log looming over his head. It was rotten and splintered and splotched with moss and nascent mushrooms. He almost felt a sense of peace, but two yellow eyes hovered above, peering quizzically down at him. They blinked and twitched, perhaps noticing that he was awake. Judd croaked in dry-throated surprise. The eyes narrowed slightly, as though they were trying to solve a problem, or like a dog eyeing a savory bit of meat. With them moved a vaguely human face, roughly crafted out of rotting bark and fungal strands. Then it disappeared back into the log. Its camouflage, absolutely, except for the yellow eyes, which continued to blink and scrutinize. Judge panicked. He clasped his fingers around the barrel of the repeater. His arms were stiff and achy from a cold night of inaction. He tried to move his right hand to the trigger, to push the barrel of the rifle up toward the log and find the trigger. But his arms were too heavy to move. He tried to shake them loose, to force the rifle to the ready against the binding canvas and sodden mud. Federals be damned, he'd take the shot. God, what is it? I don't know, but there are worse things in this wood than bluecoats. What does it want? Perhaps nothing, he began to think. But the animal part of his mind told him that that wasn't the case. There was something in this hole with him, something that hadn't been here when he crawled in, and it wasn't here for nothing. He knew it like he knew to fear black spiders with red bellies. No one had to tell him. And this thing didn't have to bite for him to know it could. And he knew it had come because of him. The way it stared down, the way its face now twisted in the bark, altered with cracks of muddy sawdust. The way it pressed down from above like it was slowly emerging from the log. The way it had begun mocking him as he quivered below it. No, not mocking. Mimicking. It's, it's trying me on. He realized this with an epiphany of horror. The face in the wood was beginning to look just like his own. Had it before, or was it changing? He'd grown up in a forest much like this one. They were even wilder back then, the forests. It seemed that even in just 20 years, the woods had become tame. People clear-cutting, cities growing, westward expansion, demanding new industry, new business. Or maybe it was just his own perspective that was changing. Judd had learned a lot about perspective out in these woods, about how man viewed, denied his own animal nature, the way how all living things were so much alike when it came down to the important parts of life, like eating, mating, killing. Nonsense, his father, a deacon, had told him. We are God's favorite, made in his image and we are to command the beasts of the earth. Judd had dutifully nodded, but didn't agree in earnest. A minute, his father took a knee and placed his hand on young Judd's shoulder. You be careful thinking like that. 
It's that way of thinking that brought God's wrath in the old books. Then he said something that surprised Judd and stuck in his mind even to that last terrifying moment. He said, You get to thinking you're no better than the animals, and you'll find out you're right. And then he went on, though Judd hadn't remembered the rest of it until all these years later. He said, Especially out here, out in these woods where truth is closer than anywhere. Remember, God gave dominion of the earth unto the devil. He looked around and shuddered, and it don't get much more earth than this. Judd tried to move his hand up to the trigger of the rifle, flexing his fingers to warm them, but they remained asleep. No, not asleep, restricted. There was something keeping him from moving, and it wasn't just the stiffness of the night. It was a pressure, and it felt like human hands. Summoned by the revelation, dozens of hand-like things, some large, some small, some with fingers that already wrapped clear around his leg, began constricting him tighter. He felt a single finger release from around his left bicep and worm its way across his body toward the very rifle trigger he'd been reaching for. The eyes continued to scrutinize, twisting their orientation and bringing the rest of the face out of hiding. It looked almost completely human now, but not quite. As he watched, a splinter of bark raised and shifted itself into shape, and position of a nose between the yellow, no green eyes. They'd changed color since Judd had been waiting. They now looked even more human than before. Judd had green eyes. Judd squirmed, wrestled, fought for all the energy his muscles could spare until the binding hands bruised into his skin and to no avail. He was held fast. The creeping finger reached the trigger guard and began groping around. Judd screamed, and with all the might of a man's fear of death, he called out for anyone who could hear, federal, rebel, the God he'd forsaken, and the devil himself, Judd called to them all for help. Damn be the consequences he had to get free. He pushed up on the gun as hard as he could. Dozens of federal soldiers, guns ready, rushed to the sound of a voice shouting for help. A muffled shot echoed through the woods, and the screaming stopped. Only booted feet and hard whispers sounded in the forest mist as they tried to pinpoint where the sound had come from. In the early morning light, a sharp-eyed boy spotted the disturbed ground around Judd's grave, and they all began to dig. At the bottom of his shallow pit lay a man who they first thought dead. One ear was bleeding. That's our shooter, someone shouted. Wily bastard, muttered someone else. We've got our man, said another, but no one cheered. He's still alive, hollered the keen-eyed boy. Get some shackles, the lieutenant began. He was cut off. First Sergeant Judd Harper, of F Company, sprang to his feet like there was a fire lit under him. He pushed away the soldiers with the strength of a dozen men and broke for a low hedge of witch hazel. General chaos ensued. Guns were picked up from where they'd been dropped for digging, some men ducked away from the swinging of barrels. Others rushed forward only to feel the biting stream of heated air zipped by their ears as loud reports resulted in the splintering of trees. Others ran for the hounds. Judd Harper stayed around for almost none of it. 
His muddy gray coat vanished into the long autumn shadows with a speed that no man's feet had the right to attain. He was in the wind before the hounds were even roused. Even the round shots seemed hard-pressed to keep up. Over the next hour, the Federal Army put in a valiant chase. The hounds were taxed with whips and shouts, but the assassin, Judd Harper, was never found. Most of the hounds milled around the grave hole where he'd sprung from, baying and howling as their masters tried to entreat them out onto the trail. Some followed a vague scent, but lost it moments into the brush. Men swore a lot. Then the keen-eyed boy returned to examine the hole. He had to push aside two old dogs to get to it. He pulled back the canvas and shook the dirt and leaves off the side. There was a spade without a handle lying on the floor of the pit, which he took and examined. A crater indented the head of the hole from where the rifle had discharged, and in it were wood chips and... Is that a face? The boy wondered. He used the spade to scrape away the dirt until it snagged on gray fabric. Lieutenant, he shouted, here's another one. The lieutenant pushed his way over, looked down, and gasped. It's a damn twin, he said. Lieutenant? The boy asked. Look at him. That corpse looks like a damn twin of the man we just jumped, but he was buried plumb beside him. Why'd they do that? The boy asked. Hell if I know. Let's dig him out. The lieutenant wiped perspiration from his brow with a nervous hand, sensing a strangeness in the air that was out of sorts, even for wartime. He shot? The boy asked. Don't look it. He dead? The lieutenant felt for a pulse. Yep, recent. What do you think happened, lieutenant? How should I know? Maybe the other one done this. Maybe the Lord afflicted them with conscience. The boy mused as they dug. Not likely. Men would kill in cold blood ain't born with a conscience. Looky here, Lieutenant. The boy pointed at the log overhanging the sniper's nest. Looks like one of them tried to claw his way up, straight up through the rotten part of the log. The Lieutenant looked. Well, I'll be. Look at them marks. Must have been a hell of a torment to bless men with strength like that. Maybe his guilt got the better of him after all, said the boy. Too long at war would do that to a man. He said, with knowing that belied his age, Nah, probably just the tight space. They continued unearthing the corpse in silence until the boy idly mused. Ma always said there's a good twin and a bad twin. Which one you think this is? The lieutenant grunted. Confederate. As far as I'm concerned, they're all the bad twin. The sharp-eyed boy knew well enough to leave it at that. The loss of the general and an assistant at large had put all the officers on edge. He stepped out of the hole so two other soldiers could remove the body. The woods had grown quiet again. No one seemed to want to talk. Maybe they were wary of more snipers, but the boy thought that it was more likely that they'd sensed the same strange something as he had in the whole situation. He peered through the dissipating fog at the shrinking shadows and felt sure that it wasn't the good twin that was lying in the dirt at his fate. Whatever the nature this corpse had in life, something evil had just run through these woods.
I hope you enjoyed Under the Sweet Gum Tree by author Joshua L. Hood, as performed by yours truly. I'd like to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark, the grand finale of our sixth season. Join me again next week when Season 7 begins with a whole new collection of spine-tingling tales to terrify to lead us out of summer and into the spooky season right around the corner. And as a reminder, if you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jerry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs>
Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>